Come back to 2 Samuel and pick up where we left off. That will be at the start of chapter 11. And as we always like to do, just a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these uh, two chapters, 11 and 12, that are just very uncomfortable and very intense and uh, yet invaluable with insight. Help us not just to get the facts, Lord, but to uh, hear the Holy Spirit breathe life into these truths so that we could put them into practice and benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it doesn't take much bad to wipe out a whole lot of good. The power of a moral failure to wreak havoc on an otherwise praiseworthy life is really shocking to me. One misstep can tarnish forever a life that up until that point was lived in total dedication. Incredible talent and gifting can be nullified in a, in a moment. An incredible achievement uh, negated in, a, in just a second. A lifetime of hard work, good reputation, all up in smoke for a momentary lapse of judgment it can do more harm than I think that any of us really realize. And we get our examples all over, sermon illustrations for this, our legion, um, athletes. I just have to name, I mean, the list was so long when I was doing research, uh, just, just pages. Lance Armstrong, Tiger Woods, Roger Clemens, Michael Vick, just, just on and on. All those years of massive discipline and, and awards and training just wiped out. And you don't remember the, the awards. You just re remember the wipeout. Uh, politicians, national platforms, Bill Clinton and John Edwards, and all of these very smart visionaries and very gifted people, famous actors who haven't made, from our point of view, with fame and fortune. Winona Ryder, shoplifting, and Hugh Grant, and Mel Gibson, and the list goes on and on and on. War heroes, I have a slide of David Petraeus's medals and achievements. You can't even count them. And so he had a choice to make it. My reputation, my lifetime career, my honor, my wife, my children, my men, my country, my dignity, or a little sex on the side. And he traded all of that for a little sex on the side, a little bad, thank you for that, can ruin a whole lot of good. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 24 says, a righteous person can wipe out the, the memory of all their good deeds by doing something detestable. You know, if you have a big white wall and you have a small black dot on the big white wall, your eye goes where? To the little black dot, all of that white, it doesn't matter. All you see is the little black dot. And King David is forever linked to another name besides Goliath than to the world out there. It's probably no doubt comes to mind first when you say King David and they say Bathsheba. Now we're so thankful uh, for the wonderful grace of God and his ability to restore and to redeem beyond measure, as we're going to see tonight as well. However, missteps 
of rebellion just can be lethal and so costly. And even our physical lives can be in jeopardy. A lifetime of consequences even. But God's grace and forgiveness, yes, but also oftentimes we have to live with consequences. So uh, incredibly uncomfortable two-chapter story, but like I said, uh, a lot of insight. So Yogi Berra, not Yogi Berra, but Yogi Berra, Yankees baseball player, and he was a catcher, a manager, and coach, but he was really more famous for all his little quips and his clever sayings. And... Uh, uh, he said, you can observe a lot by just watching. I thought that was very profound myself. <laughs> and so tonight, we're just going to observe a lot by just watching. And, you know, to learn through somebody else's mistakes, I think, is, is a smart thing to do. Amen? Uh, in the whole Old Testament, now G. Campbell Morgan's quote here, in the whole of the Old Testament literature, there's no chapter more tragic or full of solemn and searching warning than this one. And so here we go, the anatomy of a fall uh, from grace. In the spring of the year, uh, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So let's pause there. We'll call this the setup. So point number one, the setup. David disengages himself from, from duty unto the Lord. He takes a break, and not the kind of break that is good for us, like Jesus told his disciples there in Mark chapter 6 when he said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. That's not the kind of break that we're talking about here. This is a break from duty, from Christian calling, from service, and obedience. It's a little me time at the expense of our relationship with God. It's a break from being in the place that I should be in, that he's called me to be. Now, David is going to lay aside his armor, literally, because it's spring here, and the verse tells you it's the time when war resumes after a really wet winter. Uh, it's the time the ground is drying and weather is warming up. It's time to fight the Lord's battles. And you'll remember chapter 10, we were left kind of with unfinished business because David and his men had met the challenge of the Ammonite army, but had not eliminated that threat. The rains came and everybody went home to Jerusalem and the Israelites returned to their homes all over Israel. But Israel was still vulnerable. Uh, the Ammonites were holed up 
in a city there at Rabbah. And so everything was just on pause, waiting for the spring. And when the spring came, it was time for the king to protect Israel, his job, his calling, his place in life. That's where he should have been, not sending Joab out there. So mistake number one is he needs a little me time. You know, I've, I've done my thing, and he's getting older. The, the experts say he's around 50, and so this might be the classic midlife crisis. And at any rate, he's not where he should be at the time of the spring, and the Ammonites are hiding behind protective walls, it's only a matter of time before they come out and they're a threat. And so he disengages. David stays home, your verse tells you, and he sits it out, and he sends Joab to do what he should be doing. Now, an idle mind is the devil's workshop, as they say. And Warren Wearsby said, Satan will always find some mischief for idle hands to do. I cannot emphasize strong enough uh, staying busy and doing God's work and uh, being busy with our Father's business. It's the safest and healthiest and most blessed way to live that there is. That is the key to being protected from, from harm and, and, and swerving from the path and ending up, as the Proverbs say, he who swerves from the path winds up in the company of the dead. Now, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 talks about our spiritual armor. Now, you're not supposed to lay that aside and take a break. Uh, from our calling to have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the war boots on and ready to dig in with the gospel, bringing that to the lost, and the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, prayer, corporate worship and fellowship, uh, Christian serving, not hanging out with the wrong people, Christian disciplines, being under the word, being under the, the rightly divided word of God. And so many Christians are so distracted. Now, I, I'm preaching to the choir because this is a Wednesday night crowd out to hear a study in the Old Testament. This should be preached on Sunday morning for a wider um, audience. But just letting our light shine and contributing and finding your place. Somebody just told me, you know, they signed up to just help in hospitality. They came to me and said, it's such a small little nothing thing I do, and it's making such a big change in my heart spiritually. He said, I'm doing nothing. I'm, not, I'm helping with the coffee. I'm cleaning up. I'm looking out for things, how I could be helpful. He said, that's just changing so much. I personally don't have time to ruin my life. I really don't. You know what? There are too many sick people in the hospital that I need to go see. Uh, there are Christians who are backsliding. I have relatives who are going to hell. I have Christians who need encouragement and support, hurting people who need prayer, Christians who are wandering all over the place, uh, God's people, sorry, not, not anyone in here. <laughs> God's people being seduced by false teaching, missionaries who need support, souls who need to be saved, not to mention daily obligations to devotion to God and practical concerns to keep your family up and running. Who has time for any backsliding? If you're engaged, 
If you're living with a flame of God in your heart, like Jesus is any second, I've been listening lately for the trumpet. When is that going to happen? You know, I'll hear somebody blow the horn. I'm like, whoa, there it is. <laughs> when you're engaged and you're, you're using your gifts and your callings, half of the body of Christ doesn't even know what their gift is. I ask people all the time, what's your spiritual gift? I don't know. Everybody has a gift. Everybody has something to bring to the table. But if you just think of Christianity as, you know, I come to church, I listen, I get blessed, I worship the Lord, I give a little bit, and that's it. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is engaging, and that, that just keeps everything clean and right and straight. Amen? Amen? The end of all things is at hand. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Everybody has a gift. Find out. What do you like? What are you good at? What do other people say? Wow, you're really good at that. Are you, what's on your heart? What do you see lacking that you bring to the table that you could? Not so that you come and say, hey, I see something lacking, so I have something else for you to do, Pastor. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for you to see something that maybe possibly you could do. A child of God stays engaged, loving, serving, and connected, but David remained at Jerusalem. He laid aside his armor. Uh, now that he's weakened, he's going to yield to temptation, as we see. He gets up from a royal nap, and he goes out on what we would call our deck, and that's where theirs were, on top of their sturdy roof in the Middle East, to enjoy a little breeze. And the Hebrew word for walking there is like pacing. He's restless. Why is he restless? Uh, because he's not where he's supposed to be in the Lord. And when you're not doing the thing that God made you to do, you're not in the place you're supposed to be, even in daily Christian devotion, a restlessness happens. And he's restless. And so he's out looking for trouble. And I'll tell you what, the devil loves when we are bored and disengaged and a little isolated and a little restless, looking for something to do, and he wants to imitate God the Father and be a provider. So you don't have to go looking for any trouble. It'll come to you. Satan makes house calls. <laughs> and he's about to make one right here. David's not, he, your whole life can come undone in a split second when you're not even thinking about it. You're just taking a nap. You're, you're maybe he said a little quick prayer for the guys on the field. He's not looking to destroy his life. He's just restless. He's bored. He wants something to do. He just wants a little me time. And a little me time requires self-indulgent entertainment. It's time for some margaritas and some bar hopping. It's time for a steamy romance novel. It's time for something sensual to look at, just for a break, just for some pleasure. It's time for steak and lobster, even though I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. Now, I've been good for 25 chapters, David's thinking. 
He has been good for 25 whole chapters. It's a lot more chapters than you and I have been good for. And he is good, and Satan just loves to provide now a little alternative activity. Is this what King Davy wants? He hisses. Is this what his royal highness is looking for? And David sees in verse 2 a beautiful naked lady. Now, I imagine that was quite a sight. Uh, it was unexpected because that's probably not what usually happens on rooftops there, but it was happening and he saw it. Now, a beautiful naked lady reminds me of kind of a funny story. <laughs> You're like, I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> we were taking a drive and you all know the flower, it's called amaryllis. And I've told the story before because you're already laughing, some of you. Amaryllis is that tall pink lily, and it also really goes by its nickname, uh, Naked Ladies. And so one time we were driving out, and the kids are in the back seat, and Zach, our Zach, was in junior high. And Barb looked out, and she saw just a thick row of endless uh, amaryllis. And she said, look at all those beautiful naked ladies. <laughs> and Zach, in the junior high mode, he goes, oh, where? <laughs> and Zach, um, they're flowers. Amaryllis, belladonna. Oh, poisonous. When I did a little Google search, the word poisonous kept coming up. That's what I'm saying. No. Quite a sight. Okay, he's got split seconds, and uh, boom, his life is going to change forever. So he sees he's tempted, and he inquires, rather than he sees he's tempted and resists. Verse 3. Now, Warren Wiersbe says, A man cannot be blamed if a beautiful woman comes into his line of vision, but if a man deliberately lingers for a second look in order to feed his lust, he's asking for trouble. You heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, said Jesus. But I tell you that everyone who's looking at a woman in order to indulge his sexual passion for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and have been, and yet without sin. When you are tempted, you're not sinning. The temptation comes when you resist. It, it cannot conceive. And so if you resist, it doesn't conceive, therefore you have not sinned. It is when temptation comes and you let it conceive. And when it conceives, you have sinned because you've embraced the, the temptation. You've gone with it. And that is the problem. Uh, the answer, of course, uh, the temptations in your life are no different from what everybody else experiences 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. David had a way out because God promises that, and you're about to hear his multiple ways that the Lord provided for him to stop and to think and to calculate the cost. Can you imagine sitting down with him? Just take a moment, David, in a split second, just a few moments to calculate the cost. 
Let, let's just make a list of what it's going to cost you, the shame, the pain, the impact on everyone involved. And I'm sure he would have changed his mind if he just would have just stopped. Just, just is it worth it? Now, instead of creating distance between him and the temptation, David invites it to come closer. So he, first of all, has set himself up by taking a little break. And now, secondly, he's going to yield to the sin. Now, in verse 3, it says he inquires. He sends a servant out. Now, uh, he's saying, I'd like to simply get to know her a little bit. I just want some information about her. Who is she? What's her address? What's her zip code? You know, I don't know. I just want some information. Maybe, maybe I can witness to her. Uh, we get crazy under the spell. What are you inquiring for? I, I want to inquire about her. I haven't done anything wrong. Where does it say thou shalt not inquire? Not that I've heard that before. So the servant tries, bless his heart with the Holy Spirit. So he puts it in just a, just a sharp way to stop David at his bed. It's David, uh, isn't she someone's little daughter? Uh, isn't she someone's wife, David? Just, just, you know, isn't that the case? And not just any dad and not just any husband, but trusted friends. Number one, Eliam. Her dad is one of David's best fighters. Check it out in chapter 23. Her father is like this with David. Yeah, we, we didn't see that. Eliam's dad is Ahithophel, one of David's number one advisors. That's granddad to Bathsheba. This is her grandfather and her, and, and her husband, her husband is out on the battlefield. One of the top 30 of his bodyguard is Uriah. He's not even a Jew. He's a foreigner who's dedicated, and he's in the top 30. So you've got the husband, a loyal friend, the father, a loyal friend and fighter, and the grandfather, a loyal friend and advisor. And all he hears and concludes from that is, oh, the husband's away. That's what he gets from it. Holy Spirit, man, he puts up hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. There were three good ones right there. And David just sprung right over them. Because all he's interested in is a little me time. I deserve it. I'm like king. Come on. So where is David? Where is our David? Who, who took him captive? Who is this imposter? I don't know this guy. I've just read 25 chapters with this sterling, beautiful, wonderful character and noble man of God, a, a man after God's own heart. This is a beast. And, and he's not even fully doing his thing yet. Sin turns you into a heartless, self-absorbed monster. You will sacrifice mother and father, reputation, career. You will sell your babies right down the river when you start dabbling with sin and desire. For what your wicked heart has set its desire on, uh, you will sell all, including your own soul. So he's a brute beast. Psalm 73 and verse 22, I was senseless and ignorant, a brute beast before you. The saddest sight I have, I've seen on one of those nature shows, and I do like to watch them, a ferocious polar bear mauling its own cubs. 
and devouring them. And the narrator is just like, that's what animals do sometimes. That's what animals do. Animals act like that, not human beings. But we're going to find that King David is in animal mode. So she's brought to the house for the animal, and David gets what he wants, and a little bit more, because that's always the case, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. So David's been thinking, oh, I got away with it. A couple months go by. You know, boys will be boys. Kings will be kings. What happens in the palace stays in the palace. But verse 5, and the woman conceived and sends word to David, I am pregnant. Now, what is she saying there? She's hinting something. She's saying, you better do something about this or I'm going to die. Oh, you won't be the one to die. Because I'm going to start showing now. And my husband's away. And the reason that we all heard about her bath and why she was bathing is because we needed to know about where she was in her cycle. Because it's impossible for Uriah to be the father of this baby. And that's why that, by the way, information is in there. You better do something, king. I'm pregnant. So it's time now for point number three, operation cover-up. David's in brute beast mode, so he's going to send for her husband. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, verse 7. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down in your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents or booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house, eat and drink, and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, okay, remain here today also. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Oh, snap, you know. Sometimes your plans just don't go the way you want them to go. So time to cover his tracks, number three. Proverbs 28, verse 15. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So it's time just to see David not prosper. And he's going to write about the anguish of concealing his sins uh, in Psalm 32. Uh, but for now, uh, he wants it to go away. So what a great idea. Get the husband home on furlough. 
let the natural relations take their course, and then next month, he can hear the happy news. Because nobody's going to be counting the days and the months and everything. So the happy news will get to Uriah on the battlefield. Hurry home, darling. I'm pregnant. Now stay safe because of Uriah Jr. Now, Joab gets the note. And it says, let me borrow Uriah for a few days. So into the palace walks Uriah. Husband with a puzzled look on his face. You know when somebody important that you deem important um, asks to see you, calls you in, then it doesn't tell you why, and you just wonder for days until you're sitting there, what is it, what is it? I know I'm in trouble, I did something, but you want to know. Well, this guy, he's really going to be confused, but he's going to be even more confused when he gets there because a lot of small talk, but like what's, the point. So here's the, the short, strange conversation. Verses six through eight, paraphrase. So he, he's in there, he's thinking, oh man, I'm in the presence of the king. Yes, king, sir, what is it? Here I am. Everything good? Yes, king. How's the weather out there? Uh, pretty good, king. And he's thinking, what is it? Surely it's coming now. He says, you killing all the bad guys? We're doing our best, oh king. Super. Okay, now go see Bathsheba. Here's a bottle of wine. Take a hot shower, buddy. Relax. You know what I'm saying? So in 8 and 9, out Uriah goes out of the gate with a parting gift for he and his wife to enjoy, but it ends up in the royal pantry fridge, and he ends up on the sofa in the servant's quarters. And David falls asleep that night with kind of a grin, and he's thinking to himself, what an awesome plan, how smart am I? Well, this is foolproof. Only David didn't account for one thing, that Uriah had more character than he did at the moment. And so, uh, as one writer said, David had expected and hoped that Uriah would prove to be like himself. Instead, he proved to be a man of integrity, whose first loyalty was to the king's interest rather than to his own pleasure. Uriah is the man. He is, he is a hero. And to David's surprise and sinking feelings, the next morning at breakfast, somebody mentions to him, what? hey, King David, what's up with that soldier Uriah spending the night here in the, on the hide bed in the dorm for the servants? David goes down right away to the dorm, and David confronts Uriah. Uh, Uriah, yes, king, <clears throat> yes, king, hello, good morning, uh, you okay, man? You, David says, you feeling all right, buddy? Because didn't you just come from a very long and tiring journey? And I think you'd want to be in a warm, cozy, soft bed in your own home. What's wrong with you? And he says, oh, king, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of our Lord and God, is in the open field. With all of Israel, our brothers, our Hebrew brothers are fighting. Well, he's even a Hittite, your Hebrew brothers, but the people I love, they're out in the field roughing it and fighting the bad guys, and you want me to go home, have a candlelight dinner, and sleep with my wife? Seriously, I swear on your soul that such a thing will never happen, ever. Now David's thinking, fine, I'll get you good and drunk, and then we'll see how f far your integrity goes. You know, we can 
your resolve with a little alcohol. So he says to Uriah, hang in with me one more day, then tomorrow I'll send you back to the battle. So that night, he invites Uriah to the Last Supper, unfortunately, for Uriah. Uriah doesn't know that, and the beer keeps pouring. And poor Uriah, he's looped. But a good man is a good man. And he staggers out, kind of gives a couple hiccups, and he makes a hard right turn to David's chagrin, back onto the couch, even though his will had been uh, 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 tried to uh, been dissolved, but it did not, because a good man is a good man. It wasn't all a show, David. He really is good. 14th to the end of the chapter. Now, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the, there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king anger uh, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Don't you know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? Remember that whole thing? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then just say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell, the messenger sent, said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah and the Holy Spirit just wants to press the point by not using her name and calling her the wife of Uriah. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that's an understatement, as we're about to find out. And so we have David set himself up for all of this by disengaging. Um, he yields to temptation, number two. Number three, he tries to cover it all up. And now it's time for desperate measures. He's going to compile his error, sin to cover sin. And, uh, you know, sin has often been described as like a bacteria. When you look at one under a microscope, sometimes you see 
depending on the strain, uh, that they're connected. They're like a little choo-choo train of germ. And I've got a picture of that for you. Uh, sin is like this. You hardly ever just have one sin. You know how it goes? It just goes envy, turns into hate, and then we get bitterness, and then we get sarcasm and anger and rebellion and gossip and slander, and then physical violence. And then once we do that, we start lying about it to cover that up and falsehood. And so you get this nightmare of entanglement when we think, you know, I'm only going to just do this one thing. It never is. And uh, there's a lot of sins being committed by David. That's not just adultery. And it's not just murder. There's a host of commands that have been broken and always will be when we uh, sin like that. So uh, here's in the text, just quickly now. We can't make the baby uh, go away, uh, but we can make the husband go away. So carrying his own death sentence there. Memo, and here's how it reads, to Joab, to Joab from King David, uh, handed to him by Uriah, and it just says simply, kill this guy. Just kill him dead. And, and let me tell you how to do it. He says, number one, put him in the front where all the fighting is the worst. Then pull back, leave him stranded there, helpless, defenseless. And he'll, he'll look around, he'll, look, he'll wonder what's happening, but too bad for him. You know what, I want his wife. So somebody will shoot at him, surely, if you put him in the right place, and they'll just kill that guy dead. Thank you very much, and have a good day. Now, if not immediately confronted, one writer wrote, one sin, and uh, one sin will take a wretched course. David indulged his sensual lust for years, for years. God told him to kings in Deuteronomy chapter 18, no, uh, these multiple marriages. It was already in the law, but he wouldn't listen. So he had this thing and this hang up and he, and he kind of ignored God's warning and ways of escape. He allowed temptation to turn into lust and lust to turn into adultery. And when the consequences of his adultery threatened to expose his sin, he covered it up first with deception and then with murder. Satan could never tempt David with the entire package all at once, but he could deceive him uh, with it piece by piece. As I've often said, you know, the devil doesn't say to the Christian who's at A, hey, you know what looks really good? I want to get you to Z. You're, you're too smart for that. But some of us are not uh, too smart for getting to B. Well, we go to B because A is right there, and I can still see A. And so if I go to B, you know, I'll just hop right back. It was just a hop to B. I'll hop back right there. And how about from B to C? Well, C is just one. Oh, come on. It's one hop. And then what's two hops back to A? It's not a big deal. And then there's D and E and F, and you know how the story goes. Amen? Unfortunately, we all do. So Joab is the accessory. You know, Joab's going to get killed in the end, and he, and he deserves it. And, uh, okay, moving on. Uh, He's a good commander-in-chief. He just does what he's been asked to do, apparently, by the king. And, and so it goes off without a hitch, only one hitch. God saw it and is not happy. And uh, now we see the extent of that displeasure. 
Uh, so Uriah's out of the picture, all right? Bathsheba cries for about a month, hopefully from her heart. Nobody knows what's up with Bathsheba. And I would prefer to give her the benefit of the doubt because the Bible's silent. But boy, a lot of ink has been spilled about that woman. <laughs> Everybody's trying to figure out, A, what were you doing on the roof in broad daylight? B, you, you didn't say anything. C, and it goes on and on and on. But you know what? You can answer all of those and find her innocent. So it doesn't matter because the Bible's quiet about it and places all 100% of the blame on the man. And all the women said, go ahead. <laughs> I've been hard on the women lately, so there you go. So there we go. We've got only one hitch. God is really not very happy. Uh, so Bathsheba cries, and David does the noble thing. Oh, my, what a marvelous king, a pregnant uh, uh, widow and the beloved war hero friend has fallen and the king God bless him he takes her into his own home just he's a wonderful man isn't he well alright time for the wages of sin and the paycheck to come and God sends the bill through a waiter named uh, Nathan and the Lord 12-1 through six, and the Lord sent Nathan to David with the check. He came to him and first said to him, all right, hey, there's these two men in a certain city. David, got a story for you. Maybe you can help me out with the, what to do here. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little she-lamb, which he had bought and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel uh, at the table, drink from the cup, lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. All right, so uh, the Lord sets David up here, um, and... Uh, the last time that Nathan came, he had good news, you'll remember, but the Lord is going to send his friend now with uh, bad news. Now, what's going on here? The Bible says, to the pure, God shows himself pure, and to the straight shooter, he's, straight, he's a straight shooter, but to the crooked, God shows himself shrewd. So what I hear God doing here is that, David, you want to play games? Man, I'm going to play with you. I'm going to put you on trial, but I'm going to let you be judge and jury. So I'm, going to, I'm going to try you in, the, in this courtroom, but I'm going to ask you what should be done with you as a result. And so 
One through four, uh, here, here comes Nathan. He goes, man, I got a problem here. Once upon a time, there was a filthy, rich, spoiled, rotten, wretched monster of a man. He wants a lamb. And though he could choose from hundreds of his own flock, his eye catches one precious little female, the only little she-lamb of a poor man. And it's very, very dear to him precious and sweet and cuddles with him in, the, in his arms. And this, this little lamb was the light and joy of that household. And this beast burst upon this beautiful scene and ripped this little she-lamb out of his arms and butchered her for a little leg of lamb dinner. What do you think, David? He says, that guy's going to die. And Nathan says, I'm really glad you said that. Because the Lord agrees. It's you. You're the monster. You're the one who did this. And I love how God does it. He says, I want to show you what you did in terms of the pain and suffering you caused an innocent man. You destroyed him. There was a precious thing to him. And, and, and you get the feeling of cuddling and drinking from the cup, and it's his life, it's his daughter, it's a part of him. And you came in and tore it out when you had enough lambs in your own backyard. You had to have his lamb? Could have chosen an hour. You could have gone to Costco and had the whole bin of lambs. David goes berserk with anger, and why? Oh, this is really good. We often try to get rid of our guilty conscience by passing judgment on someone else. Because my sins that, oh, I tolerate, oh, so easily, look horrible on you. And boy, I'm going to chastise you to death because something resonates about what you're doing that really ticks me off about my own sin. And so that's what we see here. The sins we're so readily tolerant of in our own lives, we harshly judge in the lives of other, others. So, you know, he, he levels the news to him. Let's finish up. We're almost done. Nathan says to David there in verse 7, You're the man. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel. Number one. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why now, Nathan, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Yeah, the Ammonites may have done the deed, but you were behind the whole thing. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. 
and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Out in public, broad daylight. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also, has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And so uh, let's pause there. Reaping what uh, he sowed, uh, the Lord is going to make this a moment in David's life that he never forgets. And the Lord speaking first person. He says, first of all, this is a sin of unbelievable ingratitude on your part, David. Lord speaking to him, sort of first voice. Number one, the first thing I want to say is, this is unbelievable after what I've done for you. Uh, can we think back to the days you cried yourself to sleep and I delivered you time after time after time? I got your behind out of trouble. How many times in your life have I rescued you and showed you favor and gotten you out of all of your jams and all of your troubles? I've done a lot for you. I've given you enough wives for 10 men. Gave you the throne. And by the way, the Lord has done uh, more for you in Christ than David had physically given to him. He was not co-heirs with Christ. You are. He reigns in a different way than we reign. Christ has done more for you than for David in his life, in the fullness of the sense of redemption. So Nathan lays out the horrible details, 10 through 12. He pronounces judgment. He says, David, how could you? Uh, here's what's coming your way. Trouble's at home. You're going to know the pain that Uriah felt to have somebody else have his wife, only it's going to be on the rooftop and everybody's going to see and so it's kind of God repays David in like kind. And um, he says, your sin is atoned for. This is a capital offense, but God is going to spare your life. You're covered, but the baby is going to die. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, verse 17. And the elders of the house stood beside him and to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do something, he may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead, and David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, 
But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So here we have, if you've been counting, uh, the seventh, David repents. Now, as for the child suffering, uh, sadly, the innocent are made to suffer uh, because of the, the guilt of uh, people's sins. In my opinion, it is better to be with Jesus in paradise uh, than to have been raised in that dysfunctional household. Um, David and Saul had a lot of—David uh, and Saul were not alike, and the difference was that David had a monster moment. He had a season of being out of his mind. But David is back to his true self. He's writing psalms. He's asking for mercy. He's repented. He's crying with real tears. He's interceding. He's fasting. He's broken. He's making restitution. We see him fasting and praying and believing God and worshiping and hoping, and he owns his sin. He's not blaming anybody. And maybe you have a hard heart toward David right now, and uh, you find this all hard to believe that he can just uh, be forgiven like that. And you're thinking, well, how could he even be a true believer and act like that? And my question back to you would be, really? Seriously, you, you really have to ask that? How could David do such things? Are you aware of what's inside of you and your own capabilities? The older I get, the softer I am about this with David. You, we think it's heinous and unconscionable, of course. But, you know, with, let him who is without sin cast the first stone at David. I just dropped my stones about David. I just, I have nothing to say here except that was a terrible thing, and I'm glad he repented, and I'm glad God used this thing uh, to show us God's heart. What a beautiful thing to say, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David was confident that his son would meet him in heaven. And so this is what a lot of Bible scholars use to say that the Bible indicates that babies and children below the age of accountability uh, pass from this world into heaven. And so that's a, just a marvelous text there. I want to finish up and we'll be done. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, lays with her. She bears a son and calls him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, this is this last paragraph. It's very important. Now, Joab, back at that same place again, fought against Rabbah, 
of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I've taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, where he was supposed to be, the beginning of all of this, and fought against it and, surprised, took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was precious stones, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. Now they're working for the kingdom of Israel. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Some closing comments. A new beginning. Redemption and restoration. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. We can be more than the sum of our past mistakes, as the song goes. When believers fall from grace and behave like brute beasts, it doesn't need to be the end of the story. Here's a lesson. From Bathsheba comes Solomon. Now, David's quick with the name and names him Solomon, peace or peaceable. But the Lord sends a message through Nathan. You are quick with the Solomon, but I'm going to call him Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. I want you and your wife, Bathsheba, to know that something from you too, I can love. I can redeem. David has 20 sons in his lifetime. One is chosen to be his heir, to sit on the throne, and to be the ancestor of the Christ. Twenty choices. The one chosen by God is Bathsheba's son, Solomon. Out of everybody he could have chosen. (laughs) He could have said, you know what, I had big plans, but (laughs) you think I'm going to put Solomon Bathsheba, a union with you after what you did with Uriah? Oh, no, 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 no. Here's who I am. I'm a redeemer. And here's the message. The message is, the Lord forgives repentant sinners. The Lord will give hope to those who have made the biggest mistakes in their life. It's not over. You can be restored and redeemed and something way more beautiful than you could have ever dreamed could be come out of the gigantic nightmare that you created by your rebellion. Now, if anybody's as perverted and twisted and sick enough to think, well, great, that is the best news I heard all night because I'm in a little bit of that right now and I'm going to just stick it out for a little bit longer so that God could just turn it all around for me one day. Doesn't work that way. God is so much smarter than you, it's not funny. And uh, it just doesn't work that way. But when we truly repent, and he says, I, 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 I love this kid, 
In fact, I, I'm going to make him an ancestor of the Messiah. That, that's just, it's God forgives repentant sinners over and over again. People may not. And you yourself may have trouble forgiving yourself or thinking in hopeful terms of the future because of how much you've blown it. But that doesn't mean God can't love you and give you hope and have beautiful plans for you. Your life is not over after you've sinned. I mean, it can be if you don't handle it right. Handle it right. The Lord says, I'll bless you. I love your offspring. I love what comes out of your repented lives. There's hope. There's optimism. And 26 through 40, through uh, the following verses to the end, uh, really are important because David goes back into battle and he's thinking, you know, this is where I should have been when this all started. Is the Lord still with me? Is he going to really work through me ever again the same way? And God says, yeah, I will. The Ammonites were holed up there. Joab's fighting. Joab's been fighting a year, and they still can't get it done. Why? Because David is sinning, and, and, and our sin affects the, the progress of God's people and God's kingdom. So David's wondering, I wonder if it's over. Well, people may count you out, um, and there may be continued consequences, and some may never get over your past, but there's someone who believes in you and sees past your little monster moments into the person you're becoming and the person who's cleansed by the blood of Jesus and the person God created you to be. He loves you, and he has good plans for you, a hope and a future. I've got seven statements, reflection. Number one, keep busy and true to your calling and obligations to serve Jesus as a believer. Two, submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look for the way of escape when you're tempted because God provides it every single time. When God opens a door out, take it. Number three, when you sin, don't cover it up. Confess it and turn from it. Number four, when you sin, don't make it worse by sinning more. Number five, remember that God chastises those he loves, but not to condemnation, but for correction and Christian maturity. Number six, Remember, God forgives unrepented, uh, God forgives repentant sinners. <laughs> Whoa, what a big difference one little prefix makes. <laughs> and lastly, number seven, remember God restores and redeems broken lives and makes something beautiful out of our worst mistakes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two chapters. It's a lot of material to cover. Just, just a wonderful learning experience. We pray that you'd apply these truths to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.